welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 26, recorded on June 4th, 2019. The Cloud Pod goes event-driven. Good evening. Welcome back to the Cloud Pod. Joined here, of course, by your co-hosts, Jonathan and Peter. Peter, welcome back. It's been a few weeks. Yeah, good to be back. Yeah, we missed your uh, docile tones here on the podcast, <laughs> uh, but you did you did miss some milestones. We had uh, you know we had our first female guest, so uh, you know I know the restraining order kept you away. It's, <laughs> it's totally fine, <laughs> but not our last, not our last, <laughs> not our last. Yes, for sure. Well, let's get into the news. Uh, Azure has uh, simplified event-driven architectures with several new updates to EventGrid. Uh, EventGrid, of course, is their PubSub event model, similar to like Kafka or Kinesis. Uh, this product continues to evolve, and the new features include the public preview of uh, IoT hub device telemetry events, a new public preview of service bus event handler, the automatic server-side geo-disaster recovery solution for geo-replicating your topics, uh, and the general availability of event domains with now up to 100,000 topics per domain, uh, which I don't want to manage. And then now you can have message sizes up to one megabyte in size as well as new list and search pagination APIs and general availability of advanced filtering for increased depth of filtering for your event hub. So lots of nice improvements for those who are doing event-driven architecture uh, and really uh, a continued evolution of this product, which is great. Yeah, it seems like a requirement if you want to do serverless uh, interactive apps to have event-driven architecture. So hopefully this will keep pushing serverless forward. I think the interesting me the most about this was not so much the the features they're adding, but the um, the change they're making around how you go about deploying in multiple regions. So you, you no longer have to necessarily uh, manage deployments in multiple data centers, multiple regions to get the availability you want. There, it seems like as you are moving to this model where you kind of tell them what you need done, and they'll make, they'll manage the availability. So if they have a region go down, they will automatically shift that workload to somewhere else for you, which I think is a great natural next step for all of these hyperscalers. Yeah, it was interesting in that server-side geo DR solution um, because they replicate basically the metadata of your topics between the different regions. And then they talk about, you know, in the event that a region fails, the topic just moves over to the other region. But they didn't actually cover in the article what happens to the data that was in the event bus on the other region that failed. Is it, is it gone forever or is it, is it recoverable in some way? But, delete it. Details, just details. delete it. Delete it. Just, yeah, you, know, you don't need those events. They're not important. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, I thought that was a nice, a nice improvement because the other other model you typically do in Kafka or Kinesis is you create, you know, two different topics in two different regions, uh, or as many regions as you want, really, and then you basically multi-write, um, one being synchronous, one being asynchronous, um, and that works fine. But then you have to deal with the state of the message. You know, did I pick it up in one region and it's in the other region now, or vice versa? And you had to do a lot of queue management um, in your app for that. So overall, that's a really nice feature. I'm hoping they. They expand the the concept of the the GODR to other services. In fact, I hope all the providers start adopting this kind of model. Where I don't care where it runs as long as it runs. Yeah, that'd be great. Maybe they just don't worry about it. It's it's running when it runs, and I just deal with it from a failure perspective and retry logic. Unless I do care where it runs, in which case I want to tell you where I want it running. Well, I mean, you can definitely limit where it runs, yeah. but at least you know, <laughs> at least I can choose only U.S. regions or or you know global or whatever else makes sense. So. 
Uh, the acquisition market continues to heat up in a big way. Palo Alto Networks uh, has entered into a definitive agreement to pick up Twistlock and PureSec. Uh, for those of you in the know, Twistlock is a container security startup focusing on container scanning and runtime protection of your containers. Uh, this report sort of this was acquired for about $410 million. They had previously raised about $63 million in funding uh, and have about 120 employees, which are now added to the Palo Alto sales team. Yeah, Palo Alto's smart. They're not going to sit on what they have and hope people keep buying appliances and use their market dominance and their cash right now to buy the next wave of security uh, models, which is cool. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, you know, This acquisition and then the follow-up of PureSec, which is the serverless security startup, uh, which provides firewalling and code signature validations of Lambda execution code. Um, they picked up that one really early. So that one... Uh, they estimates that they picked up for 60 to 70 million after they had raised about a 10 million dollar round. So like they were only in their Series A, where Twistlock was more like their Series B, C uh, area. So I mean they they're definitely making a lot of big bets in this cloud security space. They did uh, they had their user conference this last week. I happened to be attending, um, and you know they announced the rebranding of their entire cloud portfolio products as the you know the Palo Alto Prisma pro- platform and so they have a bunch of products they're kind of bundling into this whole cloud story and then they talk about coupling it with their firewall devices and then they're also their big machine learning data lake uh, for security eventing and Demisto and a couple other things they acquired and it's really interesting end-to-end experience for security professionals um, but you know picking up these two companies which you know they just announced the definitive agreement so they can't really talk about what their strategy is but you know you can see that they want to they want to own this from the edge all the way to the cloud and they want to have that end-to-end security story and the tooling and the, the automation to help you manage your security events yeah PureSec looks like less like right around 20 people that's a really early stage yeah, I don't. I still don't buy that model on PureSec. So I mean, but the Twistlock is a good acquisition for them. I think it's a good move, especially with what they're doing with Redlock uh, acquisition and Evident IO previously. Uh, the PureSec stuff, I still don't. The value prop isn't there for me yet. The, the Lambda stuff and you know validating that the code is the code that I uploaded to the Lambda function is executing properly and that it only has access to specific um, components in my Amazon account. I hear what they're saying. It's a, definitely an attack vector and something you should be concerned about, but. It's also something you solve with the shared security model with source code scanning and with you know proper least privilege access. So I, I don't know. Well, this is like static code analysis during CICD. So it's not, it says during execution for some of it, but I'm like, eh, I mean, static code analysis we can do, already do. I think they're just kind of jumping on the serverless bandwagon a little bit to, to get um, a section of the market and you know good on them for that but when being invoked you know looking at sql injection attacks and things um it's not the 1990s anymore we have waf we got managed waf services we got all kinds of other protections in place before these payloads even reach our service environment so i'm kind of scared to invite any vendor of a security product to, to talk to us uh because all the security security teams want you know everything every tool they can afford and so i'd like to know more about this uh, especially the during execution phase you know what's it what's it actually doing it says adaptive and uses machine learning which kind of makes me think it's not as great as uh is uh any vendor says they use smart intelligent ai and machine learning as a feature you're like okay yeah. that's not anything but yeah. regex is in the back room <laughs> yeah exactly i mean there's there's a bunch of vendors that, that use uh, you know adaptive machine learning for for security anymore and does this mean we've got to have a bunch of attacks that are successful before they know how to recognize them and, and uh, block them or do they model these things to build 
um, you know, good good rule sets in ahead of time. I don't know, but I'd like to know more about it. Definitely, especially um, if I can deploy something serverlessly. Then serverlessly is how the word. I guess it is. Then then it will. But yeah, yeah. I don't know. The one thing that I was, you know my big risk on this is that if you you know if you're actually running in the execution runtime of your lambda function and you let's say it takes an extra 600 milliseconds to load this PureSec component and you know detect that your code is correct before it can actually launch am i adding you know up to a second of of additional compute time well that has a real dollar value to you in the aws space or even in azure functions or the different uh, cloud providers like every second of, of compute you pay for so are you are you not only willing to pay for the PureSec product, but also the execution time to run the PureSec product in your, every one of your Lambda functions? And that's that's an interesting question too. And how does that scale? And what does that price look like over time? Yeah, I mean the example they have on the on the website on their own website about serverless runtime protection, it's it's Python. They they've got a wrapper around a, f a function, and uh, they're checking to see if it's a PDF that's been attached to an email that they're handling, you know, because PDFs are obviously going to uh, contain Windows viruses and infect your Linux serverless environment. It's kind of a dumb example, but it, it seems like it's 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 pressing the buttons for the more traditional security teams. But I think digging in a little bit maybe not quite as valuable as uh, as it makes out. Yeah, I mean this early stage. Uh, buying a company this early stage, they could just be buying the team. It's very possible they're buying the team. And then, you know, the other thing on it too is they had a really huge marketing push. Actually, about the time we started the, the Cloud Pod, um, where they were really driving, uh, you know, marketing and saying trying to spread a lot of fud around Lambda functions. And I think they made Amazon somewhat angry in that whole process. Um, and so, you know, maybe they. They made a big splash. They thought they had product market fit, and then they haven't really been able to sell. And so, you know, Apollo's able to come in and buy them real cheap at this point because they don't have product market fit exactly the way they thought they were going to, and they need to redesign. So, we'll be curious to see what they do as they get purchased and the integration happens and what Apollo does with them. But uh, still, interesting times. But it was very telling that in all the press releases and all of the stuff that was announced, that everything was about Twistlock. <laughs> and then there's like one or two little sentences about PureSec. Uh, which tells you their overall impression of what this is adding to the company versus what the Twistlock's adding. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the CloudPod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Oracle is apparently laying off hundreds from its Seattle office as its cloud strategy remains grounded. Uh, over the last few weeks and months, Oracle's laid off over apparently several hundred employees from the Seattle office once viewed as the future of its cloud computing strategy. Um, cuts are notable given the mission the group was assigned to make Oracle relevant in the cloud computing uh, using talent from Cloud City, which is basically code for from Azure and AWS. Uh, infighting apparently existed between the Seattle group and a similar group based in the Bay Area uh, and potentially was one of the things that led to TK leaving Oracle and going over to Google Cloud. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting change, and you know, the first time we've seen really a, a Oracle kind of taking a step back on their strategy. It's funny you look at large companies with big pockets, and their uh, we talk about their strategy or their ability 
um, to influence the market based on their existing customer base. And it seems like in the cloud space right now, none of that matters. What matters is your product. Right now, I don't see a lot of uh, companies coming to me asking for help moving to Oracle's product unless we're talking about hosted apps. When I was at the, like I mentioned, the Ignite conference, I did run into a couple of customers who were using Oracle Cloud, but they, they were very, very specific use cases around like their ERP system or their their Oracle financial system running now in the, the Oracle Cloud for them and, and really nothing beyond Oracle use case uh, in the cloud for Oracle. But it was interesting because you know, one of the vendors had, or one of the people I talked to had, you know, basically something in every cloud. <laughs> and so it was a little bit interesting that they had Oracle as well. And I was, I was super excited. I was like, okay, what are you using Oracle Cloud for? I have to know. And then they, they told me, and I was like, oh, well, that, that makes sense that you would do that. Because why, you know, your, your team isn't probably the best team at running Oracle Financials um, versus Oracle let Oracle do it for you. Yeah, and I mean, it makes sense. It was like a great place for Oracle to have their spot, you know, offer their apps um, in a SaaS model. Yeah, but I don't think Oracle spending the kind of money just to be able to provide SaaS apps. They're, <laughs> they're trying to be much more than that. You are correct. I, I think I've realized there's been some stuff going on with Oracle for a, a good few months now because a lot of the resumes that come across the desk are uh, people who either work or recently stopped working at Oracle. And um, definitely definitely some changes coming there. Yeah. When, when your employees are bailing voluntarily, <laughs> well-paid employees are bailing voluntarily, you know you've got some problems. Yeah, for sure. Azure Adaptive Network Hardening in the Azure Security Center is now GA'd. Uh, customers find it hard to know which network security group rules should be in place to make sure that Azure workloads are only available to required source ranges. And so we talked about this when it released in beta a few months back. Uh, but this basically allows the system to identify underutilized uh, rules or more promiscuous rules and basically be able to start reducing the traffic down to a more reasonable space. So in the article, they give an example, if you had like a 10 slash 8 network, but only uh, you know hosts in the 10.100.1 range are basically connecting to you, they would recommend to you so reducing it from the slash 8 to the 10.100.1 slash 24. So uh, things like that, it's interesting. It's all recommendation-based. Uh, it does not do it automatically for you, which is good because <laughs> it's a good way to cause <laughs> outages. Uh, but, you know, it's good to least privilege is a big thing, and that's something important that Azure is trying to help you out with. I don't know. I think I'd rather go the... the the way that the the providers approach teaching people about security, uh, to, to make recommendations on such fine-grained detail like this is kind of bizarre. Imagine you had a, a DHCP server and you've only got 200 or a couple of hundred hosts that are booting up. They're all going to get addresses low in the range. If you, ha you have a tool like this, it tells you to, to reduce the scope of your, um, of your rules. All of a sudden, you add more hosts, and now DHCP server gives out IPs from a different range. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have context. It's not going to work anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly. It's zero context. I mean, I, half of this stuff I love. I, I like that you can now build security groups with source and destinations of an Azure service because that, that really sucks when, when, you, when you've got a, um, a provider like Amazon and they do health checks from one of 500 different public IP addresses and that may change on a daily or weekly basis. And you just cannot possibly narrow down the scope of your security groups to, to only accept traffic from those hosts. So to be able to name services in security groups, that's fantastic. The the whole machine learning making recommendations thing, I think it's kind of dumb. You should you should know what your traffic is and where it's going before you deploy it. So I think in this case where it's IPv4 as their example, I kind of completely agree with you. 
I sort of have a different perspective when we're talking about IPv6, just because it's so much more complicated. It's not quite as something you can necessarily wrap your head around, the, you know, that number of IP addresses and, and all those kind of things. And so I could see in a scenario where if I was doing IoT or I was doing something else where maybe you would want to be able to see this type of recommendation engine. But then again, if it's IoT, <laughs> you don't really want this either. Uh, but, you know, I, I kind of see maybe more of a use case for it in IPv6 than I do in IPv4, but... You know, again, I, I do kind of agree with you as well that you should know what your systems talk to and you should be able to declare that in some way. But yeah, it, it is an interesting choice. I'm glad it's just recommendations because uh, I'd hate to hear about people's outages caused by this little this little thing. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, for a for a sort of proactive, hey, by the way, maybe you could narrow this down. Maybe you should spend, you know, half a day looking at this kind of recommendation. Maybe maybe that's fine. Maybe that's one thing. But I mean, IPv6 is going to going to mess up a whole bunch of things because when you start getting DDoS attacks we only get one packet from every address and then they're just discarded I mean correlating those things um, there's no good solution for that yet yeah I think that one uh, sort of main use case for this are people who are migrating apps from their data center that has a flat network into the cloud they want to start implementing or get to the point where they implement least privilege but right now they can't migrate because they're not 100% sure um, of you know what's open what what they need open, what they don't, and they want to move and they want to shut down their data center. And so this is a way to get there with maybe some relatively open private rules um, and then give you some tools to at least show that, you know, you're going to be moving in the direction and taking, you know, looking at those recommendations and figuring out what you can shut down in a, a maintenance window type time frame instead of trying to get it perfect before you do the migration. I think it could be a really cool migration tool. Yeah, and having it in a nice web console is even better. Because calling up somebody on the, the network team and asking him to log into some random device on the edge or someplace buried in the middle of your private network to look at the you know the, the Cisco stats or the Juniper stats on a particular rule, nobody wants to do that. Nobody likes talking to those guys anyway. <laughs> but actually getting them to do it in a timely manner is, <laughs> is also hard sometimes. So I guess more access to information is, is good. Amazon uh, EBS has added the ability to take point-in-time crash-consistent snapshots across multiple EBS volumes. Uh, what this means is that if you have three or four volumes attached to your EC2 host and they are maybe striped together to run a database at very high performance, uh, you can now have that snapshot at all at the same time with a simple API call versus uh, this really fun song and dance you used to do, trying to exactly time each of these snapshots and never getting it or each of the and never getting it right. Uh, so this is a much needed improvement. I actually surprised this one took quite as long as it did to get here, but I am happy it exists. Yeah, or even I mean, what you had to do to make sure it were, they were accurate is stop access to those disks and have a minor blip in service well, disruption. Surely, surely you still have to stop access in that you, if you want a crash consistent snapshot, then you need to have the files closed and the buffers flushed. Well, this is where, I mean, but this is where you, your script basically gets created on. The, you know, you have a cron job on the EC2 host that has these EBS volumes attached. You know, you basically initiate the QS command to like SQL Server or to MySQL. It QSs to disk, and then you fire off this API, and it snapshots it instantaneously. That's that's not a bad scenario. I mean, it, you still have some not. interruption, but it's better than the old scenario, which was that you had to make six different API calls and then hope they got completed in a single in a single you know amount of time before the disk got accessed again. Yeah, so I guess they can they can claim that the the snapshots themselves are consistent with each other to a, to a, to a point in time, but what they can't do is say um, whether or not your operating system actually uh, quiesced the disk and flushed all the data. Yeah, and they don't know that. I mean, I it would be nice if they would integrate. And in, I know, like in Windows, there's um, 
shadow disks services and things like that that if you I think if you're using the Amazon agents, I believe that if you're snapshotting, it's supposed to call to that service and make sure you're you're getting a, a consistent disk site. But I don't know if they have that for Linux, and so I, I don't really know. I don't about an agent for Linux, but but we use um, uh, snapshots of uh, LVMs in Linux to achieve the same thing, and we always mm-hmm. uh, suspend writes to the actual disk. So and then merge the changes back in later. Yep. Anyway. It's definitely doable. It's just uh, you know in the Windows space because they have that agent, they can kind of tie right into it. I don't yeah I don't know on the the Linux host, if that's correct, the case. Maybe something to research uh, when I do half-assed internet research later. <laughs> <laughs> Linux file systems have been a bit more robust for a lot longer than Windows file systems. It's true. I mean, NTFS is slightly better than FAT, but but still. Um... Uh, so moving on to Jonathan's favorite feature. They have now announced tag-based access controls for AWS CloudFormation. Uh, tag-based access controls for AWS CloudFormation allows you to build safe, predictable, and consistent IAC code. You can now deny certain users deletion or update privilege stacks with a production tag value while allowing changes to stacks with development tag values. Security and tagging is awful, though. <laughs> Pete, did you want to go first? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> awful. Uh, even their example they used, oh, if you want development and production stacks in the same account or in the same region, even their example sucks and it doesn't follow their own best practices. It makes total sense if I want who, to. Who would, ever, who would ever do that? Yeah, hey. They're just missing the glaringly obvious thing that if you give developers permission to deploy CloudFormation in an account where production stacks are already deployed or may be deployed in the future, those people need permissions to edit the tags. And if they have a permission to edit the tags, they can edit those tags on anything, not just on their dev stacks. It's, it's, it's security through some veil of, of obscurity. It's Well, so I mean, what I see it as is that the security team is basically going to say, well, you can't set tagging because now if you have tagging access, then you, you know, you can f- break the security model. And so then you enter the situation where now you remove tagging from the developers. Now you've lost cost allocation tagging. Like there, this is a slippery slope that I, you know, you just end up in a really bad state, yeah. but it would be okay if they gave you different classes of tagging, right? Where you had security tags that you can set at account level or at a, at a very specific level that are not modifiable. Uh, by this particular process, that that would be maybe workable in this model. But the way this has been implemented so far, I I agree. This is a really bad practice. Yeah, I mean, I think the solution is to allow you to set permission policies on whether or not you can add tags, delete tags, or change tags based on their key. So if the key is environment and you deny access to that, um, the value to that key, uh, then it then it would start to make some sense. Well, but but the developer needs to write to the same key, the environment key, but the, the value is now uh, dev instead of prod. But in this case, you're using CloudFormation, so you're creating the environment that needs to be tagged. So how do you not set the tag for that? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, well, what they need, Jenkins, what they need to do is is have <laughs> a, uh, it's like if if the current value of something is is not dev or is prod, then you have no permission, but there's no, that, that doesn't exist in IAM. There's no, uh, you know, if it's, if it's a modify action, the only things you have to, to work with are what are you modifying yeah. and what's the, what value you're going to set. You can't say, well, read the current value. And if it's this, then allow it. And if it's not, then don't. Uh, what they, they needed to implement groups uh, of some kind um, to, to, to do kind of resource grouping with groups of cloud formations or groups of IAM users or, any groups of low balances, anything really, instead of using tags to solve this problem, they should just have had a resource group. 
Or just use different accounts. Because there's been a lot of this tag-based access controls over the last few weeks here. We've talked about on the show a couple times already, and uh, that's why I enjoy poking at Jonathan. But maybe there's something coming at Reinforce that makes this make sense to us, and we're just we're not seeing the end result where we'll get to in two to three weeks at Reinforce. Um, but you know, right now, I, I am not super happy with any of this security tagging. Yeah. That sounds like a uh, prediction. Uh, maybe, which will... <laughs> Maybe be my prediction at the at the prediction show Maybe. for reinforce. We'll Maybe. see. We'll see. I, I mean, I'd, I'd be happy if there were if they introduced uh, namespaces of tags, so we we you could assign permissions to. Uh, but that doesn't really solve the problem, though. It doesn't really solve their example, which is uh, a stack that's either going to be deployed as development or production. The, the tags, the names of the tags would be the same, just the values would be different. So that doesn't really solve it. Yeah, I, mean, I wonder if they would make the argument that you should be using. Uh, service catalog to make this work, right? And then service catalog, you can set those tags to be hard set and those aren't modifiable by end user. Maybe a combination of service catalog plus this tagging information set makes sense. But even, I, I, I still get, I can't, for any service but CloudFormation, I can make this argument. But CloudFormation, because it's so powerful, this is one I really struggle with how this is supposed to work. Anyways. We'll see. We will <laughs> see. <laughs> like, I, let's hope for a, an answer to this query when uh, we get to reinforce because I, I, don't, I don't get it. There's a new data API for an Amazon Aurora serverless. Uh, and so this is a typical problem you might have in a serverless application talking to a database. Uh, if you have event-driven container or Lambda functions executing as your database, you may very rapidly end up using up all your connections. Uh, you end up with uh, increased clock time and memory consumption to manage any connections that are open. And then eventually you have to get to connection pooling because you'll exhaust the pool of connections. Uh, and this is a big problem, particularly for uh, serverless technology and accessing traditional databases. So now with this new Amazon Aurora serverless, which is the serverless server database product, which I don't quite understand either. But now with that process, they now have made it available so you can actually write those database queries as API calls directly to the MySQL compatible Aurora version. And that frees you from the complexity and overhead that comes along with traditional connection pool management. Yeah, it also frees you, I'm assuming it also frees you from worrying about database credentials because you should just be able to get those creds to the API or permissions to the API from a role. Yeah. Well, I mean, you had that with Aurora already, though, too. So you had to, because you just basically use, um, you know, you set the role to the instance or to the server Lambda function and it have access to the Aurora database. Like, that would be pretty straightforward. I mean, what's the alternative is, is you is you have to queue the requests or have some kind of broker that, that maintains that connection for you or something. It's kind of, yeah, there's never been a really good solution for this in AWS, so good for them. I'd imagine you're moving now that from a platform independent code base to a Amazon dependent code base. Oh no, not the vendor locking conversation. <laughs> <laughs> if you're on MySQL, that might be important to you to be able to run across run the same code. Uh, well, I mean, but if else. you're if you're getting out of if you're going out of AWS, you don't have Lambda in this capacity anyways. You're going to either be moving to Azure Functions, which is different and maybe not support Python, because they don't support all languages. I don't even know which ones they support at this moment. They also don't have serverless uh, Aurora either, so you'd be typically provisioning a typical MySQL server on that side, and then you just use connection pooling like a normal animal does. Yeah. Um, so I mean, like, it's still, I mean, yes, there's some lock in here if you write to the API, but you should be able to switch from the API back to the SQL JDBC drivers pretty quickly without too much work. Amazon managed streaming for Apache Kafka, which uh, has the acronym MSK for no good reason, uh, is now generally available. Uh, this was announced at reInvent as a beta product, and since then they have released several new features uh, since the beta based on feedback from customers like you. Uh, 
Those include encryption in transit via TLS, mutual TLS auth for ACM private certificates. Uh, they now support Kafka 2.10, uh, 99.9% .9 availability. It's HIPAA eligible. Uh, it has cluster-wide storage scale-up capabilities, integration with CloudTrail for MSK API logging, cluster tagging and tag-based IAM policy applications, and defining custom cluster-wide configurations for topics and broker brokers. Uh, Kafka pricing is a little bit complex. Uh, it's per Kafka broker hour plus per provision storage hour. And AWS area transfer charges do apply to this as well. Uh, but overall, this is really nice if you're trying to do a lot of things with Kafka. Uh, they do mention that you do not pay for data transfer between brokers and uh the Zookeeper nodes. So that's a good uh, improvement because that can be quite a bit of JIA traffic depending on your Kafka implementation. Uh, but overall, super, super nice to have this out in GA finally, uh, despite having the dumb MSK acronym. Yeah, great that that's HIPAA eligible on day one. That caught me by surprise. Yeah, it was a little surprising to me too. Well, to be fair, it's been six months since reinvent. <laughs> that is fair. <laughs> six months so, from day one. That's awesome. Six months from day one. <laughs> <laughs> Although, uh, you know, a TLS taking six months, uh, that, that should have been a, uh, I, I, I wouldn't have the balls to uh, even trial a service like this, being somebody like AWS without actually having encryption end-to-end -end available. Yeah, that was always the weird thing in the in the original announcement reinforced was like, who's going to use this without TLS-based encryption for the data you're pushing into Kafka? Is typically data uh, could be PII sensitive. It really made a yeah. lot, made very little sense there. Um yeah, no, I, it's nice, too, that this is all just one big release with the GA instead of, you know, they're GAing it today, and then three weeks from now we can talk about, you know, hey, it's having its GA party because now it has 99.9% availability. Um, it's nice that they did release so many features for this as part of the GA, and I, if this is a new trend where they're going to actually do a lot more capabilities into a GA release, I think that's going to be super helpful for customers to have more confidence of when a product's really GA'd. Yeah. And I, I actually think this has been driven a lot by Google and Azure um, and what their GA is much more robust than what Amazon's was. I think this is a response to the market in some ways. So uh, Jonathan, how was your uh, YouTube viewing on uh, Sunday? You're, you're, it wasn't good. I can tell you that because it was down. <laughs> Google Cloud had a had a uh, major outage on Sunday. <laughs> well, I'm trying to make some of this my, my zero tech day and it's, uh, it's kind of getting there, but no, I, I hadn't. I didn't even notice until I actually broke my own rules and picked up my phone and noticed that you'd sent me a message saying you would not believe what's happened to Google. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't actually know. I wasn't being affected by it at that time. Yes. Uh, so yeah, Google. Many many Google services were impacted, including Google Cloud, Google Drive, Gmail, G Suite, plus a bunch of customers who are also using Google, including Shopify, Snap, uh, Discord, and more. The downtime lasted from 11:45 a.m. Pacific time to 16:40. Uh, uh, Pacific time and the network apparently this is a network congestion issue of some sort that impacted Google Cloud they will conduct an internal investigation they did release a preliminary uh, RCA if you will or I call it basically a, a you know after action report uh, they do have not released the full RCA yet but uh, the preliminary industry report uh, was published on the Google Cloud blog uh, they said for several users uh, who rely on services homed in the affected regions, the impact was substantial, particularly for services like YouTube or Google Cloud Storage, which use large amounts of network bandwidth to operate. Uh, and basically, they basically summarize it as there was a change being made to supposedly a small number of servers in a single region that ended up being a large number of servers across several regions. <laughs> and it caused all those regions to stop being able to use more than half of their available network capacity. Uh, so that's a pretty big uh, mistake that someone's going to be learning how to do IAC code properly in the future. <laughs> Sounds a little similar to the S3 outage, which was a similar thing where the configuration was applied to too many, too many servers or more servers than anticipated. 
So maybe maybe you have a tooling problem right there. Yeah, I'm excited to see what the the full RCA says uh, when it comes out. Hopefully this week. I assume they're going to respond because the, this initial update. I was like, if this is your RCA, and this is really lame compared to Azure or uh, AWS's SLAs. It was pretty. If you had to pick one service, one cloud service from one vendor that I would say is least likely to have issues, it would have been Google's network. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the beautiful thing is they have all these controls in place to start dropping uh, what they consider low priority traffic in case of network problems. <laughs> and it's it's the system which was designed to help uh, solve over congestion, which ended up causing the outage. So it's... So they dropped all the uh, flat earth YouTube videos yeah. first. <laughs> yeah, I wish. Yeah. Wait, what did what did people do on Sunday if they didn't have all these services available? That's the question. I mean, they probably realized that there's a sun outside and and left their house for the first time in years. It's, it's probably good for them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting because you mentioned the S3 outage where they made changes to more than they expected to. Uh, is that your is that your favorite uh, cloud outage, or do you have a different one that you like better? The ELB, the ELB one, right? The ELB code push was a huge uh, one. Which was that one, Peter? Gosh, maybe was that 2012? That it was Christmas Eve 2012, December 24th. The great ELB outage. The great ELB outage. Uh, yes. Uh, always good times talking about outages. Christmas Eve change. Yeah. Who, who decided to do a change control window December 24th? Yeah. That's some continuous delivery can bite you sometimes if you're not careful. My, my favorite one is still the Amazon one where they took the S3 traffic off of the primary you know, 10 gig throughput and they dumped it onto like a 100 meg backbone network they had for management on accident. That was a, that was that's probably my favorite one because I was like, I wonder how much money they saved by only buying 100 megabit network cards versus the 10 gigabit network cards. Uh, and then accidentally route all the traffic through that network. Like it, some some person, some penny pincher was somewhere like, oh, you know, these 100 meg cards are you know, a third of the price of the 10 gig or maybe a tenth of the price. You know, those days it was really expensive. But, you know, it's like one of those moves where RCA is like, we're going to replace that 100 meg network with a 10 gig network just in case this happens again. <laughs> but that was a, that was one of my favorite ones because just one of those, those those moments where the tech people beat the CFO. <laughs> I think, I think my own my own favorite outage was was not public cloud, just private cloud, and that's that's when we have these fully redundant systems in place. You know, uh, redundant power supplies, redundant everything in the sand. Absolutely beautiful. We had a power supply failure. Business as usual. We call up EMC. EMC come out to to uh, swap out the faulty unit and power off the working side of the sand instead of the uh, the faulty side and take the entire. <laughs> <laughs> Take the entire de- deplo- <laughs> deployment down. Every single disk is is now in recovery state. It took us like three or four days to get the whole thing back up again. So, and that was the the uh, nail in the coffin for uh, Rackspace and private cloud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think my favorite private cloud story was uh, you know, when I used to live in Seattle. Our data center was in uh, Fisher Plaza, which, for those of you who know, is is the main um, broadcast center for the emergency broadcast system, as well as one of the major TV news stations in Seattle's home data building. And then they had a data center. And, um, you know, we're watching the 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock news and the studio lights dim <laughs> while they're recording the broadcast. And I'm like, that's weird. And then the next thing I know, my pager is blowing up as like, you know, all these pages come in. And, uh, you know, I was a little bit far from the data center. So our on-call guy gets there and he's like, the building is dark. There is no lights. And they're literally, you know, in the in the plaza, he's standing next to some people, you know, arguing about what the, how they're going to get the news on at 6 a.m. the next morning because they don't have a BCP strategy for the news broadcast for the next morning. And it ended up being a... Um, 
an arc between the service bus and the two and the and the big power feed into the building in the switch room basically and blew out the entire amount of switch gear. So all the backup generators were unavailable to them, all the UPSs, and they had to literally drill holes into the building to bring outside generators into the building to get power back up. It was a it's a fun outage. <laughs> Well, that's it for new news. Uh, thanks for going down a little bit of memory lane there on our, on fun outages. Cause, yeah. uh, it just it came to mind. I was like, yeah, because you know, Jonathan's mentioned this S3 one a couple of times, which is a good outage. I, it's one of my probably top three, but uh, I was curious. So thanks for doing that little sidetrack. Uh, Peter, welcome back for the lightning round. Yes, lightning uh, So round. while you've been gone, I have taken a crushing lead. Oh. Um, Jonathan gave both of them to me because he's a nice guy, I think. Uh, despite you know, our first female guest, which I thought was a shoe-in for winning the lightning round last week, but uh, that did not happen. So, yeah, you you might need to re-listen to those episodes and maybe uh, overrule. Jonathan's. Nope, nope, nope. But, uh, it's in the books. Right. We can't, we can't. Uh, you know, somebody might have had money on that round. I can't go back and change it's it. Now. Judges honor, judges honor. There are people that true, true. Once it's made, yeah. We need. To... No, we did. We did talk about last week that maybe we need to pick a mid-year point, especially since we just passed our 25th episode. Uh, which I did commemorate with a lovely blog post that's on our website, uh, talking about you know why we started the podcast and what it's been like growing our audience and you know marketing and all of our lessons learned and you know kind of just, just tell people what we did and why we think it's cool and you know our commitment to the podcast and all that, which I think is fun. Uh, but you know we were talking that maybe as we're coming up to you know 52 weeks of year, if 26 would technically be half year, that maybe we should reset the lightning round at Ooh. the half year point here. And start over fresh with zero scores. Yeah, that's something we so, might think of doing. Something that you might think about as judge, jury, and executioner of lighting round. I'm thinking, uh, yes. All right, I will take that under advisement. In the meantime, on to the lightning round. Um, okay. Oh, you know what? I would, I would be interested, though, if anyone's listening and they are betting on the lightning round. I'd like, mm. I think they should send it in and let us know. All right, here we go. Uh, AWS is announcing Windows Server version 1903 AMIs for Amazon EC2. Well, in 1903, Windows was a good vintage. Uh, <laughs> you know, the crank yeah. on the server oh, to keep on. it running, you know. All right, that's, that's, that's it. All right, time out, time out. <laughs> let's, let's revisit the resetting the scores to zero conversation. Actually, no, no, no forget it, no, it's, it's 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 already won anyway. It's already won. If you, if you're gonna cut it off at 26 episodes for six months, that's he's already won. I don't care. <laughs> ding 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 ding. Just, it's just one point. There's plenty of time left in the in the in the round. Don't give up. Come on, hold strong. <laughs> Nothing else though. Amazon Chime now supports United States toll-free numbers. Ah, uh, telco, the dying industry. <laughs> yep. AWS Storage Gateway Service adds capability to move virtual tapes from S3 Glacier to Glacier Deep Archive. Yes, virtual tapes, otherwise known as files. <laughs> Indeed. It makes sense because the whole point of Glacier Deep Archive is to take the data that you're never going to touch and put it in on ice, which is exactly what I want to do with my tape images. Yeah, I think they need one layer farther than Deep Archive, and it's going to be very, very, very cheap, and you're guaranteed to never be able to get your data out, even if you wanted it. Black hole. All right, AWS has introduced fraud detection capabilities using machine learning. I hope they don't discover that. <laughs> <laughs> this is a nice, this is a nice feature. You know, uh, this is to me is a direct response to Google and their uh, their continual evolution of machine learning pre-built components that just do cool things like this. So, uh, I expect we'll start seeing more of these from Amazon here soon too, as they respond to what Google's doing. 
Yes. It's when the machine learning systems start coming up with ideas. We really have to start being concerned. Yeah. Google has announced a new open source load testing framework for PubSub at scale testing. Oh, good. We can test that GODR feature we talked about earlier. Azure has several new enhancements for Azure app configuration to increase release velocity via feature flags and simplifying troubleshooting across distributed apps. I don't know how feature flags increase release velocity, but yeah, okay, cool. That's awesome. You got nothing over there, Jonathan? Come on. All right, AWS TextTract is now generally available in Northern Virginia, Ohio, and a couple other regions. I'm glad to see this get GA'd uh, for sure, but... Uh, I don't know the use cases yet for it, so I'm, I'm. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting to be impressed because you know OCR has been around for a very long time, and this needs to really step up the game. I mean, it is cool to be able to take like a W two and scan it in there, and it, it he'll go the fields, and they're all in a JSON object after that, and I can just reference it as a JSON object. I mean, it's cool. Um, OCR, you know, could do that as well, I guess, but I, I hadn't seen anybody design that, so. Uh, I'm sure it exists somewhere. I just I hadn't seen it before. So I like the way they're implementing it, but I agree with you. It, the use cases are still to be seen. Maybe, but in, in a paperless world, you don't need to scan documents anymore because people are typing data in on a keyboard to begin with. It, it It's only on paper if you print it out. It's almost like for backward compatibility at this point. This yeah. Well, let me introduce you to a little thing called the mortgage industry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, next time I buy a house, I'm going to get a stamp made with my signature on it so I can just go stamp, stamp, stamp. Thank you very much. Uh, so I was uh, overseas one time when we bought and sold a house, and my wife uh, had the joy of getting to do it as power of attorney. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Which, if you think saying your name was bad, you get, a, you get she got to sign, signing on behalf of power of attorney for Justin Broadley signed her name. Which I thought was fantastic, and didn't live that down for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> Digital signatures need to uh, really need to be to be a thing. AWS DataSync now supports EFS to EFS transfers. It's weird to me that they didn't call this multi-region for EFS, but you know, hey, whatever. <laughs> you want to pimp, pimp DataSync, that's fine. Yeah, why not just EFS RSync? Does it even support all in one region now? That's the that's the question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think with DataSync you can because you just point the same source to the multiple destinations, but uh, where maybe the multi-region because those are typically only two regions, maybe that's why they chose this naming. It's a weird weird question. As opposed to EFS backup, which they have somewhere else as well. They do have that too, yeah, in the backup AWS backup service. Yeah. Yeah. Why just rsync data between two man points when you can pay Amazon to do it for you? There you go. AWS IoT events and things graph now generally available. Well, there you have it. And best name product. It. It's the best name product that Amazon has, though. Things. Things. Pro Internet of Things. Yeah, it's perfect. So the Internet of Things Things graph is now generally available. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. I, I'm so confused about this stuff. I need I need a graph of the AWS IoT Things graph things. Yeah. <laughs> That's enough things. Amazon Elasticsearch Service now supports SQL querying. Is that with MongoDB compatible? <laughs> 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 I love that they uh, just keep going right after those Elasticsearch enterprise features, though. Oh, you want to be able to reference your Elasticsearch with SQL commands? Here, we'll make that open source for you, too. Don't pay yes. Elasticsearch. Yes, what's Fantastic. next? <laughs> the most interesting thing about this press release is that it's 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 called Amazon Elasticsearch Service now. It's called SQL Query. It's, it doesn't refer to the name of the open source project, which was, what was it? Uh, Amazon's Open Search Distro for Elasticsearch? Yes, and that's because they announced this feature in the Open Distro like three weeks ago, and I didn't put it in our show notes because it was on the open source blog 
and it's about the open source component, not the service. And I, so for some reason, I've named that a line that I'm not going like, to, if it's over there, I'm not going to touch it uh, for our show. So now it's part of an Amazon service. I'm, I'm all about talking about it now. My, my bet is that trend will continue. Yes, uh, sure I think it will. New AWS certification readiness courses are available for Alexa skill builder and certified security specialty. Hey, Alexa, certify me in security. <laughs> oh, I thought Jonathan was going to come home strong in that one. I was going to say something. I changed my mind. I'll, I'll save you. You can say it and then you can delete save it later. <laughs> Quite possibly. I'm like, it's, it's just like a continual kind of circle jerk of, of things with AWS. It's like, oh, we've got this new skill. Now pay for the, the class to teach you how to get the skill. Now pay for the thing that tells you how to be, to be ready to take the class to do the skill. I'm like, but I just don't do it all in one go. Like, <laughs> it is weird how you pay for the readiness course and then you have to pay for the test separately. I wish that was like, here, we're going to boot camp you through this course today and then here's your voucher so at 4 o'clock you can go into this other room and take the test. I don't know why they don't do that. No, no it's, 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 I don't know, it's kind of weird. I, I guess there's a natural progression of, well, are we going to bother doing this if nobody wants to do the Alexa Skill Builder um, course or, or uh, exam but so are you are you claiming that their courses and certifications are an mvp process that they then add features to over time i can't imagine not, amazon would do that not i, I feel sorry for the, the first people to take the test <laughs> because it, it's going to be all different in uh, in three months time or six months time aws now allows ec2 hibernation without specifying encryption intent at instance launch so someone asked me the other day about, you know, what are weird edge cases of Amazon <laughs> that you ran into over time? And this one should have been my answer. Like, who would have thought that hibernation would have anything to do with encryption or intent of encryption, which <laughs> was a bit of a surprise to me. But, uh, yeah, this is uh, interesting. I have the answer. I have the answer yes. to this. Ding, what ding, ding, it? ding. Contents of memory are saved to disk. And if it's not an encrypted uh, volume, then potentially you've got sensitive information being, being dumped onto the EBS volume. It could be keys or passwords. It could be anything that was in memory at the time of hibernation. And so mm. being, being, encrypt, being encrypted was, uh, was pretty important. But when, I mean, why do I have to specify the intent? If the, if the EBS volume is encrypted and I hibernate it, shouldn't it just know it should be encrypted? <laughs> Versus, like, I don't understand why this whole specify encryption intent is a thing. Like, that... Well, hibernation required that the EC2 instance uh, was backed by an encrypted EBS uh, volume, uh, but I think I think they've backed off on that requirement. I now. see. Okay. Amazon Elastic Cache for Redis improves cluster availability during planned maintenance. I love a service that can remain available during maintenance, or especially during downtime. But during maintenance is good enough. During down—that's my favorite. During unplanned downtime, when they can stay available, that's when you know you're yep. golden. <laughs> I mean, this was one of those ones I was like, okay, planned maintenance. I you, you told me it was planned. If you're down during planned maintenance, I'm okay with that. But I appreciate that you're going to keep it up instead. So, yeah. Good, good, good. Amazon Aurora with Postgres compatibility supports database activity streams for real-time monitoring. Yeah, I don't I don't know what this is, but I do like that it's Aurora with Postgres SQL. To just, you know, jab that knife in on the open source side. I mean, isn't isn't a database activity stream uh, a log? Yes, I mean that's basically what this okay. is. It's logging. When I, when I when I read through it, it's it's logging, but it's right. still a weird uh, weird aspect. <laughs> so logging logging via Kinesis. Ah, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So if you if you're on the the bandwagon of I want to use Kafka for all of my logging events, uh, you can now do that natively with Kinesis and uh, Aurora Postgres. So, yeah. Yes. And only pay by the hour. Yeah. 
exactly. <laughs> and by the data ingestion point, too. So that's always fun. So, man, this was neck and neck between fraud detection and uh, 1903. Unfortunately for one of you, I'm a beer drinker, not a wine drinker. So Jonathan but 1903 gets it. could be whiskey. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying it doesn't have to be wine. It could be some other hard liquor. <laughs> watch, yeah, we, watch this. Kind of moved away we, since we, since we're all sharing the uh, shared doc that shows the notes. Watch this. <laughs> Bam! Look at that, Jonathan. <laughs> Jonathan <laughs> wins. Good job, Jonathan. Well, oh, thank you. We we kind of moved away from the uh, the chatting about what we're drinking. You know, we we keep all that stuff closeted away now, and uh, I keep our problems secret anymore. But yeah, we got to start doing that I, again. Justin and I had a had a awesome tequila the Ooh, other day. <laughs> what kind? <laughs> I think it's on my porch as we speak. Um, yes, it is a delicious tequila. Hold on, I will tell you. And you can edit this out later, which you won't. You'll just put Jeopardy I, music I, here. No, no, no. I can't flog a dead horse. <laughs> However, I we'll both stop by for some of the tequila. <laughs> I love tequila. It was the most most interesting tequila I think I've ever tasted. Well, while he's looking, I'll give you my favorite one, which is out of my price range, but I was offered some uh, once, and it is Ray Soul tequila. Look that one up, and if you ever feel like treating yourself to something spectacular... I uh, recall this half bottle was somewhere in the region of eighty or ninety dollars. It was ninety dollars. So, <laughs> it was ninety dollars. Okay. <laughs> uh, it was delicious, though. Uh, it's actually apparently, it's a uh, it's made by the product manager of the service. I don't remember. The, oh, the the weird. Um... No, I can't remember either. I was too busy enjoying it to uh, listen to the story. I think. Sumerian, the guy, the product manager of Sumerian, that's right, makes yep. this particular tequila. It's a Campo Vida tequila, and it is a sipping tequila, and it is not doesn't have the burn of a tequila, but it has a nice, like, smooth sort of coffee chocolate finishing note. It's quite fantastic. Awesome. All right, uh, I'm gonna get myself a bottle of that. Campo Vida tequila. I will put it in the show notes for you. Awesome. Well, thanks again, you guys, for joining us here on the CloudPod. Uh, like I mentioned, that blog post of our top, our first 25 episodes is out there and available to you on our website. Uh, I did cross-post it to Medium as well, if you prefer Medium for some reason. I don't know why you do that. But uh, it's out there and available to all of you to read and, and hear about our foibles and uh, fun enjoyment of building out the podcast, because it's been a super fun journey. Uh, and if you are interested in joining us for a cool tool segment or for giving us feedback, we'd love to hear from you via our feedback form on the website or through apple itunes uh, reviews and ratings so get out there and do that if you want to support the podcast we would love the star ratings and feedback thank you very much see you guys next week see you next week later and that is the week in cloud we'd like to thank our sponsors foghorn consulting subscribe today on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the cloud pod